John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 320.GN4519, certificate number 14871. The Death of Trolleys. <sighs> the Death of Trolleys. All things must pass, John. Mm, even true. Even trolleys. Are you, uh, have you ever gone through a phase where you regularly used mass transit? Yeah, um, all the time. I mean, anytime I visit overseas, it's such a delight to have functional mass transit. And my kids love it because kids all grow up as transit fans. Right. Like America has to turn them into little car kids. Yeah, you're right. But it's true. It's Kids are born liking buses and trains we're, way more. We're all train spotters. Exactly. You have to really have to drum it out of you if you want a little patriotic American kid who insists on driving everywhere. And it's true. Really, any major city anywhere outside of America and Canada has a, a completely functional and bustling little mass transit system. Mind-bogglingly effective. You, uh... I, you know, I just like, I love the bustle of the Tokyo trains. Mm-hmm. I love the the efficient mapping and signage of the London underground. I like the beautiful old art deco entrances to the Paris metro. Every German town has a has a very efficient and clean trolley. You've got the streetcar ring that takes you everywhere. Wonderful sort of vintage cars in Amsterdam and, and Vienna that share track with with new uh, hyper hyper modern cars, and you feel like you're doing your part because you look around and see a city that is not car choked and car dependent, and you, you think, "Well, I, I want to do my bit for mm-hmm. that. I'll, I'll take this this charming little train instead Th- that goes ding ding and then takes you right where you're going. It goes clang clang when the trolley. And even uh, even cities built on hills, like in Switzerland. I mean, there are mass transit systems that involve. Uh, funiculars and oh uh, cable cars. I love a good funicular. I know you do. Me too. That's a. Uh, I mean, it literally starts with fun, and they're not wrong. Interesting. That's what ends I, with icular, <laughs> which is uh, they're also not wrong. I mean, testicular starts with something everybody hates. A test. Right. True. But funicular starts with something fun. a little better. It's like fun. It's like testicular except fun. <laughs> That's what they should say. And have you, in in your experience uh, overseas in all these wonderful little uh, train sets, uh, surely you have reflected on the fact that in the United States we don't seem to be able to make a go of those systems. And have you have you sat uh, consternated uh, trying to figure out why? I have, as the as the quaint European shops drift by the window. My thoughts too drift ding, ding. to a different America, choo, one choo. where. Because, you know, it's very much a live question here in Seattle where we are finally building light rail decades after we could have. Right. Decades after we were offered federal money that instead went to build a non-functioning uh, transit system in Atlanta. Right. Uh, right. Although I took it not very long ago and it, it runs. Didn't you and I take it together? <laughs> oh, we did. We, yeah. We, we enjoyed it very much. We went out of our way to take the train back. We did. In fact, we uh, – and, and remember we sat – Oh, no. At one point, we had lunch in a restaurant where they had taken the tracks up and turned it into a 
into a bike bike path. Oh yes, I remember that. But we did take the that was where take, Omnibus was born. In fact, right. at that steakhouse. But we took the train and uh, and had a had a, a lovely old time. We made a transfer even. We did, and that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, you know, if you're a commuter, maybe you complain about having a transfer, but a tu- for a tourist, what a treat! Yeah, to transfer from one train to a different train. We got off and stood there with our map unfurled, and a local person came by and said, "Can I help you? Can I help you, boys?" I think the problem with the Atlanta system is because it was built in the '70s. The main goal of the planners was to make sure uh, black people never got to go anywhere good. It's a super brutalist environment yeah. too. It has. Um, well, and the joke's on them because um, because Atlanta because the black people ended up getting to go places good in Atlanta. They did, <laughs> and it's just now the train doesn't go anywhere useful because people were so worried about it not serving the wrong kind of neighborhoods. Yeah, that's right, and and that, and we risk that even now in mm-hmm. building our transit system here in Seattle. Part of the um, part of the the most recent controversy is that the people over in the Lily White suburb of Bellevue, or what used to be Lily White, now it has a, currently ch- the <laughs> overwhelmingly Chinese suburb of Bellevue. It has a lot of immigrant uh, uh, population coming to work at Microsoft, but uh, but they they tried to they tried to put the kibosh on building mass transit to Bellevue because they were afraid that it would bring the unsavories. The evil man who runs the mall was <laughs> successful in making sure that the train came nowhere near the actual retail core of the city. Because then suddenly you'd see teens from the not-so-good schools scaring everybody away from Swarovski. Right, coming over to, to Bellevue, Bellevue Square, which is still the, the mall that has inexplicably expensive stores in it. And it's not a, we don't want it to be a teen hangout. No. It's, for, it's for moms to go to Panera or places maybe even nicer than Panera. Right. Well, no, we do want it to be a teen hangout. But they have to drive their BMW <laughs> Cabriolets <right. laughs> and park in the uh, the parking garage. It's a certain kind of teen who's there to buy something at the Apple Store and maybe a five hundred dollar Lego set. Right. Um. But uh. But so it so it surely occurred to you that America could have a uh, a functioning you know trolley and light rail transit system in our major cities. And uh, has it seems it, conspicuous by its absence. It does, doesn't it? Our cities aren't that much different. I mean, we have we now have suburban sprawl because of the century of the automobile, right? But there's nothing inherent about San Francisco that explains why Muni and Bart are so much lousier than their equivalent in any small German city. And and it's in contrast to the the uh, intercontinental rail system where the size and scope of America and the great distance between our large cities and Canada also, um, it is more difficult to build a network of rail than it would be in Germany or Holland or Belgium or France or, in fact, all of Europe, an interconnected system that, that, is, um, that all works together. Although there were some gauge problems for a long time in Europe where trains had to stop and Change undercarriage. I think I once accidentally only booked myself halfway between Paris and Barcelona because I didn't realize you have to get out at whatever the last French city on the line is and get onto a different kind of train to go through the Pyrenees. Right, because the, the rail gauge is different. Because Franco didn't want his trains to be the right width or whatever. As you, as, and, and. Who would? Rightfully so. It's the only thing that appeals to me about fascism. The trains <laughs> might not run on time, but they run on very odd <laughs> scaled tracks. And so, so when you're in Europe and you're traveling by rail from country to country or city to city, and and reflect on the fact that, or in Japan, and and reflect on how efficient it is and how well designed and built those systems are, that doesn't uh, instantly translate to the United States. And we're seeing right now Elon Musk's attempt to build a high speed rail from San Francisco to Los Angeles, becoming just this bugbear uh, of cost overruns and. Um, and you know, it increasingly looks like it's not going to be anything close to what was promised, which was what a maglev train inside of a vacuum tube or something like that. Uh, and now it just looks like it's going to be a train. It's uh, yeah, you don't expect something the size of the United States to be like Wales, where you can just get up and take the train to the other side of the country, because the United States is not the size of Wales. It's it's one of the 
it's one of the things we we boast about. Right. Bigger than whales, Bigger than we, whales. we say on our great seal on, also, the, on the one dollar bill. I would say Wales is a bad example of a country that you can navigate all to all four corners by rail. That's true. But yeah. you know, but the south okay, the south of England though. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. For example. Sure, you're all over there on a train. You know, every hour there's a train to the place you want to go. But the frustrating thing about our cities is that they, although many of them, particularly in the West, are built on larger, you know, wider streets plans than, say, for instance, you know, a medieval German city, there isn't any reason why um, light rail wouldn't work just as well here as there. Made even more frustrating by the fact that many of these American cities were actually designed around um, public transit, tracked transit, electric trolleys. I didn't realize that until moving to Seattle, I think, because then you can see all the weirdly wide streets that used to be streetcar lines, all the current cool biking and hiking trails that were once into urban rail. And you realize, oh, before everybody could afford a car, we had very functional uh, transit in this in this remote corner of the country, which means I assume pretty much every U.S. city had really good streetcar lines. Functional transit and transit that um, that the the construction of uh, the construction of the transit actually uh, focused and affected the way the city grew and the way the city built. And, and uh, in a lot of cases, uh, transit investors and transit companies were also connected to property development so that there was, so oh, it, it wasn't just, it was a mutual interest or, or even a, uh, uh or corruption one would say <laughs> or, or corruption. And there, there's a ton of corruption in this story for sure. Um, but tracked transit started even before, uh, electricity. It was uh, uh, trolleys were put into American cities and and European cities in the the mid nineteenth century, uh, and they were drawn by horses or by uh, you know by mules. Yeah, I've seen that. But why do you need the rails? Well, because in those cities at that time, before, the horses were dumb and would take the wrong turn. Horses are horses have always been incredibly smart. They are just as smart in eighteen fifty as they are now. Which is to say, extremely smart. And you seem to be worried that I'm going to get canceled. To our to our future equine to equine our, listeners, hello uh, centaurs of the future. Let me just say, Ken misspoke. Uh, no, uh, the quality of the roads in mm. those cities were cobblestone and um, and broken macadam and uh, pebbles and skulls of our enemies and uh, logs. <laughs> which, which cities in particular were paved with the skulls of our enemies? <laughs> Indianapolis? Uh, Gomorrah. <laughs> and that's right. And, uh, Tampa, but also, uh, mud and, uh, you know, city right. streets were not, um, were not smooth and rail was. A bus-like thing would have just been rattling all over. Rattling constantly. And if you put a, if you put a, a trolley on, on tracks and pulled it with a horse, it was, the smoothest and most efficient way uh, to move people through a city, and it was kind of a kind of a, a revelation. Um, and it goes it, clang clang clang. It did. The, the previous song would have been <laughs> went the trolley. <laughs> uh, and so that's, uh, that that um, that method of public transit kind of exploded and became very popular. And it was a um, it was during a time of horse drawn. Where horse-drawn carriages were the were the um, were the primary means of conveyance outside of walking or I guess riding on a horse, uh, it it um, it was pretty easy to dedicate a certain section of the street to to this gleaming new rail, you know, influenced by the the spread of steam locomotives around the world, uh, and rail was kind of the new fashionable style. I wonder why no steam solutions. I guess it's not efficient on a small scale. Not efficient. On, I mean, cert, uh, not efficient on a small scale uh, would have been, you know, just another element of total pollution and just much cheaper to have a horse pull because you're going to be doing lots of stops and starts, right? You, yeah. It's a little trolley. You're going to go up three blocks and stop. You don't want somebody shoveling in coal. Right. You can just shovel oats into your horse instead. So this infrastructure was built, and then when electricity became a uh, – you know, a, a new utility. Uh, these lines were all electrified, and and uh, trolley lines and electric companies were also often in partnership or cahoots. Um, Depends on who you ask. <laughs> the, P, the press release said partnership. 
the, uh, Somebody the, else might the have other said contract cahoots. said cahoots. Nobody's ever in good kind of cahoots. Yeah, there were there were th- this was the era, of course, of of uh, antitrust or of or, or of the big trusts, mm-hmm. and American business then as now is always seeking to find uh, opportunities to exploit new efficiencies and also to develop a kind of top down or or, or uh, symmetrical. What, how, how do you describe a it? Vertical uh, integration. A vertical integration is Where right. You control every aspect. Control of your- every aspect. So if you could. Control the delivery of electricity, the supply of parts, the rails and and uh, and cars themselves, and the property out in the suburbs where the new houses were being built that the that the tracks you know uh, went out to. Uh, you you had a perfect vertical integration of the whole of a whole system. It's not just livery stables that are out of business. You can put people out of business at every level of the economy. That's right. <laughs> Uh, and it was, and that 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 was part of the um, of the early development of of the trolley systems in the country. Uh, so much so that those early uh, public transit magnates who sought to find uh, opportunities to to uh, have a monopoly control over public transit were regarded. And this is crazy to us now because we think of um, public transit. Exclusively in terms of the public good, those are the good guys. Yeah, and pushing it's a, back against big business. That's right, and it's a it's a they're a liberal cause celeb, right? But at the time, the um, what were what were called the traction interests. Traction. The tr- because traction was the it's the noun form of laying track. Oh, I that's guess. right. Well, and and also like the electricity provided the traction for the for the trolley. Mm. Um, uh, the traction interests were seen as. Uh, as monopolists and uh, kind of a rapacious capitalist that was coming in and mon- and not just monopolizing this business, but also our city streets. I want to go back to a world that's so innocent that your Lex Luthor is um, the guy who runs the streetcar line. Runs the streetcars, right? I feel like I could I could do okay. By the turn of the century, of course, I mean most American cities, not just the big ones, had just like we were talking about in Europe and Asia. Uh, there were trolley lines, extensive trolley lines. It probably led to some sprawl, right? Uh, like we, we think of that as an automotive problem. It led to sprawl in uh, in a sense that we now think of even the furthest extent of the trolley lines as being kind of within the city, yeah. right? I mean, if we think here West Seattle, uh, we talk about we still talk about uh, the junction up mm. at the top of West Seattle. Well, that was a streetcar junction. There hasn't been a streetcar there in 70 years. Nothing gets joined at the junction. But we still call it the junction. And that would have felt then like a long way out of town. Yeah. But now, if you can afford to live at the junction, you're, um, you're, it's thought of as like, well, I mean, you're still in West Seattle, let's be honest. But, but it's still, it feels like town. So it created sprawl at a scale that we would think of today as kind of still responsible and manageable. It, there was, uh, you could always walk. If you were able-bodied, you could walk the distance that the streetcar could take you. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's a that's a false standard. But you, you couldn't c- hang off the back if you're Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd. My, that, that's what streetcars are for. My dad grew up in Seattle in the 1920s and 30s, and he couldn't afford the nickel to ride the streetcar. But he, in his knickers and leather shoes that required some strange wood-handled hook to tie, <laughs> uh, he would run run after, grab a hold of the cow catcher on the back, and crouch down and ride. So he would do the free kid riding yeah. thing, just like in an old-timey movie. Is, is from, a nickel about right? Is that, or is that just your hypothetical? I think. I think. Well, it was probably a penny, and then uh, uh, well, so a nickel fare became the standard cost nationally of a streetcar ride. And in uh, in many many cases that was mandated. Streetcar circles—that's what nickels were called. Streetcar circles, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and tokens were were often used, but those tokens cost a nickel. And in many cases, what that, happened—that's a big token for you, trying to—that's right. Oh, introduce a middleman. Well, that's just a—it's t- just a, that's a token comment. <laughs> Tokenism. Uh, um, in their in their haste and desire to establish. Uh, kind of uh, monopoly control over transit systems within within uh, cities. A lot of the transit purveyors, a lot of the traction interests, were quick to agree to uh, 
to business arrangements with city governments where they said in exchange for uh, a, a monopoly interest here, we will maintain the right of way. We'll be responsible for snow plowing and for um, keeping the, the roads in good order. And we will stick to a, a 5% or I'm sorry, a five cent uh, cost for a streetcar ride with, with no um, provision for inflation. No, uh, you know, it was part of this the the way that the cities negotiated these contracts. They said, you know, you have to keep the keep the cost at five percent. That's a good deal. Now, by the way, that would be less. That would be around seventy five cents today, yeah. depending on whether this was nineteen twenty or thirty or forty. But that's a, that's a cheap ride. It was a cheap ride, and but a profitable one because at the time, the the way um, the, the there wasn't a ton of competition and. Uh, and not a lot of complexity to, to building these things. That's right. right. Once they were built, uh, operating them was fairly cost effective. Although there was a kind of legacy, uh, a, a, a legacy culture of having two operators per train that was kind of a holdover from. Uh, oh, like a driver and a conductor? A driver, or, or a holdover from even like uh, the crew that would run a horse team. Mm. You know, you had. You had two people sitting there, and, and they were superfluous. The second one was superfluous in a in an electric trolley, but it was it was kind of uh, you know an institution by that point. Uh, but even so, the the employees in the at the turn of the century were were uh, the 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 cost of ha- having two trolleymen wasn't an onerous cost. You know, the first time I ever rode city buses much, because I, I never took the my dad took the bus in Seattle to work, but I walk to school. And uh, so the first time I ever rode a city bus much was in South Korea. And in the early 80s, all buses had a driver and a second person, usually a, a young gloved woman. Halfway who, up the bus? Halfway up the bus, who appeared to have no job, really. It was definitely a relic of a different time. Yeah, a because work. Maybe at some point, yeah, she took fares or something, but that had kind of all gone away with with better mechanized buses. And I don't know how long that lasted. Did she but, have a uh, seat or did she stand... Through her whole work, day. I think she had a little seat by the door, and uh, that went away sometime in the late '80s. But uh, you could definitely see just whatever the technological legacy was, it had left an extra person with a job, and it's hard to it's hard to legislate that away. You remember riding the monorail in the '70s and '80s, where the the pilot would would pull into the station and dock, and then pull their little handle out that allowed the, them to control the motor. It was a kind of a little like, uh, it looked like the handle of a, of a large coffee grinder. <laughs> and then they would carry the handle all the way through the train to the other end and insert it into the control panel at the other end. Why and, didn't the monorail just have a handle on each end? Well, because the handle was the, that was the key. That was the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like without this handle, it's almost a ceremonial thing. It's like delivering this, the uh, the crown jewels. It or really something. was. You got your. I guess probably uh, when you when you got your uh, your certification to drive it, they probably called it getting your handle. Hear ye! <laughs> let it now be known the monorail is going the other way. But I remember watching that pilot and just thinking, what that was the greatest job in the world, and they didn't have an assistant. It should they be on a little pillow, carries it all the way to the back of the train. But it really was the success of the of the trolleys that began the. Um, the process of their own demise. The trolleys took people out to, you know, the extent of the line. And um, here in Seattle, as you said, you can see all the streets that used to have trolley lines, Yesler and uh, uh, Union and so forth. You can go sort of down the, down the street and see which neighborhoods and which little stores little clusters of stores were located at former trolley stops. Yeah. But um but this was th- this started to create a kind of envy on the part of people that lived just a little bit further out of town. The um the people that were kind of living in a rural, you know, slightly exurban areas who felt like the trolley line went out to some neighborhood, Ravenna or someplace and stopped. And at that point, also, the streets stopped being maintained and the snow stopped being plowed. <laughs> there was a movement in the 19th century, the late 19th century, called the Good Roads Movement, which was a kind of national um, movement to improve the quality of roads in the country. 
people that you know it was kind of the era of the rise of the bicycle and the the uh the notion that time in the country was good for you and and um or was this kind of for city people as much as it was for people who lived out there? It was a it was a sort of yeah the type of thing that uh, if there were an NPR at the time they would have supported the good roads movement. But it was a it was a, an idea that now that we have these roads, now that you could conceivably get from city to city on these uh, on this network, that now we our next step was to improve them and make them not just uh, not just transit corridors but but uh to to elevate the entire network to make it uh, olmsteady and and pleasing like like we because that's what was happening in the cities right parks were being built yes. the boulevards and uh, people in the country recognized that or people in the in the in the surrounding areas also wanted some of those amenities and as part of that uh the idea of bus service started to enter into the equation. What would an omnibus have been back then? It would have been horse, a horse drawn, or well, initially horse drawn, and then um, and then gradually just wheeled trolleys, but that were um, that had that could then travel further out from the last rail stop from the last trolley stop. Were they the same vehicles? They could just literally go off the rails. No, there were, there was a separate network of buses Mm, that would then take you from, take you from the last trolley stop and take you out to your house further afield. And the buses were more flexible because you could turn. You didn't have to follow the track. Uh, They were more expensive at the time but only slightly, you know, because there was, um, because although operating costs were higher, gradually over time, infrastructure uh, costs were a lot lower, right? You had to, you didn't have to maintain a trail, or uh, I'm sorry, a track network. Yeah. And so right about the, right about World War One era, uh, the, the rail networks kind of reached their, Apogee, and we're we're now connecting to these these bus networks. Uh, a man by the name of John D. Hertz, mm. uh, and he wasn't actually born John D. Hertz. He was born Shandor Hertz. Shandor, yeah, and he's from Slovakia. Isn't Shandor a much cooler name than John? Shandor is great uh, as a great name. John D seems to echo John D Rockefeller yeah, and maybe a so. thing that he took on after he emigrated to the United States. Was the D for Dick? Like is Dick uh, Hurts? Oh. No. God, what kind of This is a family show. Were you never in the 4th grade? You don't remember Dick Hurts? I was in the 4th grade before that kind of humor was popular, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> Dick Hurts having not yet been invented yet. <laughs> yeah, so he's the I guess he's the rental car namesake, right? Yeah, but in fact, uh J.D. Hertz probably uh, deserves his own entry in the omnibus because before he founded Hertz Rental Cars, he actually founded the Yellow Cab Company. Huh. Uh, Hertz was was one of these plucky sort of uh, immigrant uh, characters who came to the U.S. and you know was a was a teenage boxer and then you know, uh, became a newspaper delivery boy, which he turned into a job as a newspaper reporter. And then he, um, you know, somebody suggested that he become a used car salesman in the very early days of, of cars, the beginning of used cars. And after he owned a, you know, a couple of cars, he started to lease them out. And then he kind of started a cab company. And after, uh, running a cab company for a while, he started to build buses. Oh, he started a company building cabs, yellow cabs, and then he extended that to building coaches, uh, which he called the Yellow Coach Company. This guy's doing vertical integration, but he's just trying everything. He's trying every step of the ladder. And at, at a certain point, he combined all of his uh, his coach building operations um, into a company called the Omnibus Corporation. Hey, where he was supplying coaches to all these different 
uh, transit companies. I want to hear about when he took out John D. Avis, just destroyed him. <laughs> he started Hertz, uh, his uh, his rental car company, which was called Hertz Drive Yourself, and in this, in, which, which is yeah, yeah, and in the popular popular uh, style, it was drive dash ur dash self. So he was like he was very much pre pre internet there. He invented text speak. Yeah, drive yourself. But he uh, and 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 uh, and during this era, like cab companies and transit companies, this was all you know. The, the, these were uh, highly competitive businesses. There was a lot of kind of gangsterism. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to pay off the right people yeah, to get the, the right contracts. Companies were were blowing up one another's stables and one another's uh, bus depots. But Hertz ended up selling. Um, he sold the he sold interest in his company to General Motors, and ended up um, ended up being on General Motors' board of directors. And at the point at which General Motors enters into the story, uh, we're arriving at a moment in streetcar history that has that became very uh, that. Uh, that became a point of great controversy later in looking back because there was this sort of pivotal moment right after World War I where streetcars went into decline. And in later years, there was a lot of contention about what it was that caused this decline. But the, Well, it's because everybody saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit that's right. and realized it was, an, it was a conspiracy by the what, by the freeways, by Christopher Lloyd, <laughs> by someone to shut down all the trolleys. Well, uh, Now, to today, trolleys only go to the neighborhood of make-believe. They well, don't even go to Toontown anymore. Roger Rabbit came out in 1988, but this conspiracy theory had its origins a lot earlier than that. So it's reflecting something people already believed about how the trolleys died. That's right. And and um, the, conspiracies, the conspiracy story started in the 1940s. And in fact, um, the companies that comprised the conspirators uh, were General Motors and Firestone Tires, Standard Oil of California, all the great, you know, like small businesses. All the great villains from American corporate history and and all people who would benefit from the institution of car culture. Phillips Petroleum and Mack Trucks. Hmm. All together as a consortium uh, started... Tra- some transit companies, or or rather, bought pre-existing transit companies um, under the uh, under the aegis of National City Lines, and th- through that company, started buying up defaulting transit companies across the United States. Bus and streetcar lines. Uh, streetcar lines, in particular. And what did they do with them? With their new. It's just like the the hedge fund people that like buy Toys R Us and then fire fifty thousand people. Yeah, they bought up the, the they bought up the transit companies, tore up the rails, and replaced them with buses. Oh, okay. Because well, so the conspiracy, the conspiracists would have you believe and have us all believe that this was uh, th- their naked self interest. Sell more cars and oil. Sell more cars and oil and tires and deprive us of the choice of uh, public transit of not driving cars and filling our cars with gas. That's right. And, 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 uh, and to take away these public works, right. Uh, transits, transit systems that belonged to cities that served the people and replace them with the, um, what seemed to be an option, but what in fact became a necessity, privately uh, owned, privately owned cars. And this, uh, this, Conspiracy was uh, – th- th- this National City Lines uh, process started in the late 30s. Uh, all these transit companies were in receivership, a lot of them bankrupt already, and being purchased and dismantled by this National City Lines and its, its subsidiaries, the American City Lines and the Pacific City Lines. In general, were they in trouble because of the creeping influence of cars? Like, is it a cause and effect thing? Well, where? so now this is the this is the the place where this conspiracy is kind of 
debunked by history mm-hmm. or or uh, debunked in retrospect and and the the desire for it to be a conspiracy has always been political even from the 19 uh, the late 1940s when it um when it was sort of first floated uh, th- these companies were actually prosecuted and uh prosecuted for prosecuted in what looked like an antitrust prosecution but really i mean they were prosecuted for the antitrust crime of um controlling a monopoly in the part the manufacture of parts and services for buses like it was not it was not a widespread not a sweeping yeah. uh prosecution and even that prosecution the judge that oversaw the trial said that it was that the he felt that the jury was influenced by uh unemotional appeal but the the death of the trolley had started a long time before and it was uh it was a product of this confluence of factors that we've kind of already discussed one of them being that the trolley interests the traction interests rather had agreed to contracts with cities that were that did not have a lot of leeway to account for inflation or changes in ridership. So the, hmm. the the companies were on the hook for maintaining the roads and were only able to charge a nickel for fares. They're locked into a nickel. And as more and more people started using the roads, as uh, the, the rise of the automobile meant that these roads were now in um, widespread use by a variety of motor vehicles, the transit companies, for-profit companies, were maintaining the roads on behalf of the city for the good of all with no return. Free rider problem. And this, the, the, the cars that were now choking the streets drastically reduced the efficiency of the, the electrified rail because all of a sudden these trolleys were stuck in traffic. Mm-hmm. And the cities where trolleys remained uh, viable, and it's really only a handful that survived through this whole period, Chicago, Boston, San Francisco. Did they have dedicated lanes? dedicated or at, lanes or, or, or were uh, elevated, elevated roads. Yeah. And so any, any town like Seattle or Atlanta or St. Louis where the trolleys had to share the roads, all of a sudden – they're stuck in traffic. And although they were still only a nickel, um, they were now in competition with the buses that, that had originally just been part of the system to continue the, tra- the travel at the end of the trolley line. The bus owners and uh, bus interests. Of course, they're going to want to move into areas of greater density. That's sure. where the greater profit center is. So a, a fuller bus. If you go all the way to the city center, instead of dropping you off at the railhead, they just kept, kept on big omnibus. That's right. How big I hate omnibus. it. And so, yes, these, you know, general motors and firestone saw that their interests, uh, coincided with those of buses rather than rail, but the, but rail ridership was plummeting. They were not shutting down a thriving enterprise because it was going to do. It was doing so well. Right. But they would have if it was doing so well. They would have held on to it. And people were naturally gravitating to cars and buses because of the appeal of the you know the new the new form. Right. If you it's the novelty of it. Although and the independence, you can go straight to your driveway instead of just to instead of just to three blocks from your apartment or whatever. That's right. Um, but this became, in the second half of the 20th century, as, as urbanism started to, to um, a, a, as the philosophy of urbanism started to become kind of a, uh, an academic discipline, and the memory of these lost trolleys still, um, you know, still lived in recent memory. I mean, I don't know... You couldn't, you couldn't possibly remember this, and most listeners won't. But in the early seventies, when I was a kid, there was in Portland, Oregon, still a trolley barn where all the old wooden trolleys 
that had been retired from the Portland streetcar system were stacked one on top of another, piled up. What were they being kept for? They they just had never they'd never set them on fire. They ne- they hadn't gotten around to and 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 uh, throughout the sixties and seventies, you would see these in the uh, the outskirts of American towns. These big just dumping grounds of old trolley cars. Were they occasionally repurposed like um, like photo mats? Weren't there some sometimes little, you know, fish and chip stands or whatever that were... Little diners. That were trolleys? There was some of that. There were some old trolleys that were converted to buses. Hmm. That, and they're, they're beautiful to see when you see a little uh, thing that clearly used to be a train that now is a bus. Uh, but a lot of them were... I mean, even by the time they were retired, they were pretty decrepit. And they just sat stacked one atop the other. And I have a picture of me and my sister. I was probably five and she was three. And for whatever reason, we were in our Sunday best. She's in this, you know, white dress, uh, ankle length dress. And I'm in some kind of little white suit with a blue bow tie. And we're standing inside of a of a very old trolley car with the windows all busted out and the, and the floors and ceilings, everything's made of wood, like very weathered wood at the time. And I think that car was sitting on top of another car and there was a car on top of it. And my dad had hoisted us up there somehow for this photograph. Child safety having not yet been invented. That was not yet invented. And I don't, I'm, I'm sure that those trolleys didn't survive, uh, past 1976, you know, it, it would have, those would all would have finally been, uh, crushed up. Yeah. They weren't yet old enough to seem cool. So, no, but at all. they, they just seemed like the previous technology it seemed like, you know, your grandma's old vacuum or something. No, there's no nostalgia for them yet. But by the mid seventies in, and, and this was during a time when the Atlanta, um, mass transit system was built and the Washington DC and San Francisco when, when suddenly there was a resurgence in rail, probably oil crisis leading to federal investment. Is that right? Oil or? crisis and a desire also f- to make, um, to make cities accessible to, to build these utopias, these ur- urban utopias. I mean, there was You're a, starting to see the first, in, the first ill effects of white flight. Right. And, and there was a lot of awareness. I think that, uh, awareness of the tendency to try to not build transit to serve poorer communities. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of pushback from, um, from progressive interests that, that wanted to make sure that that transit did serve those populations. And of course it was politics, right? So it wasn't um, a lot of it was for show and a lot of it uh, uh, got blocked a lot of us to have your local guy look like a good guy because he's he's fighting to bring the right the he, trains to the neighborhood. Even though you know he knew that there that there was uh, that there was no chance. He, but, probably, he probably takes a payoff to shut that to quiet down at some point. That's what usually happens during the Johnson administrations and uh, or the Johnson administration and the subsequent sort of Nixon era. There was from Congress a lot of energy directed toward. Um, urban renewal. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it in a lot of different aspects of what, what urban renewal was, what they, what they thought it was going to do, how they were going to roll it out. But in 1964, there was uh, an act called the Urban Mass Transportation Act, which was an attempt to have a coordinated, um, not, not coordinated system, but a coordinated uh, a mentality about urban mass transit. And that was, uh, that was extended. There was a, then a subsequent mass transportation act in 1970. That was part of this, uh, this system of grants that resulted in the construction of MARTA in Atlanta and BART in San Francisco and would have produced a Seattle mass transit system. If we had only voted to accept the money, 1% more vote or something. Because that was part of the National Mass Transportation Assistance Act. And all of this was, you know, a congressional recognition that um, oil crisis, gridlock, but also urban renewal efforts, uh, attempts to combat the death of the inner city mm-hmm. and um, offset some of the effects of white flight from urban cores. All, all sort of a you know part of this great society um, attempt 
by the by mid century intellectuals to um, cities. Cities are getting worse, but we're still the greatest country in the world. We can do better. <laughs> That's right. It's, yeah. Well, enter into this Ralph Nader, uh, a, a frequent guest on our program, your former boss. That's right. Who um, who kind of looking back at the at the the way that streetcar streetcars uh, disappeared from the American scene and the role that the national city lines and General Motors played uh, in the in the aftermath. And as you know, Ralph Nader and General Motors already had that history. <laughs> they had a nice relationship with one another. He kind of uh, you know made this assertion that that the death of the streetcar was part of a larger conspiracy on the part of these, these oil and gas and, and, um, and car industries. So he popularized this historical misconception. He popularized it. And then in 1973, a man by the name of Bradford Snell wrote a, um, like a, what became a very controversial paper asserting a asserting the whole broad conspiracy that we came to understand as the as the facts on the ground during the Roger Rabbit era. I mean, everything subsequent. <laughs> I always think of that as the Roger Rabbit era of American history. They they were all sort of based on this uh, this testimony that Snell gave to the Senate, um, and that became then a, a received understanding that a lot of politicians, the mayor of San Francisco, you know, a lot of, a lot of people that wanted to um, politically present themselves as pro city, pro transit, anti corporation and anti, you know, the, uh, even in the mid seventies, these companies were also recognized as polluters yeah. as, um, as you know, Counter revolutionary. Uh, <laughs> I think General Motors and Phillips Petroleum probably are among the most counter revolutionary companies. So they became uh, they became kind of punching bags or straw men uh, to attribute all of the you know all of the problems of pollution, oil dependence, uh, reliance on the car which are all real problems and all problems promulgated by General Motors and Phillips Petroleum, but they they were then set up against this idealized version of what America could have been, one where it wasn't just that the trolleys went away because of, you know, a, a, a multitude of forces. It was that they had been destroyed. The thing about conspiracy theories is they often simplify a problem, yeah. and that's very tempting. Instead of saying, well, it was all confluence of things. Nobody likes to hear that. What you want to hear is, uh, here's the deal. It, it, it's um, From a policy point of view, it's pleasing because it makes it seem more solvable. But also, we crave narrative. Like From a narrative point of view, it's like, here's a story I can tell and you can understand. The evil car and tire and oil interests killed the trolley. Right. And, it, and it's 100% true that General Motors did not have any interest in electric trolleys. They wanted them gone because they were in competition with their desire to sell cars and Phillips Petroleum didn't gain from trolleys either. They wanted them gone. I mean, this, the national city lines was a, a, uh, was dedicated to taking the trolleys out. Uh, and so the conspiracy theory, so, so general Motors's role in it isn't misrepresented as far as them being they're not getting railroaded as it were right uh but but uh, general motors and phillips petroleum were so late to the party um and really if uh if the traction interests had been allowed to raise their fares or if the traction interests had had the foresight to make the uh, the trolley lines uh, a separate grade from the street, or help put the cities on the hook for some of the maintenance of roads there, in general. There's no reason why um, trolleys wouldn't have survived through the 20th century. But nobody's making at a corporate level. Nobody's making decisions for 20 years from now. Everybody right. then is now. I mean, it's worse now. Or two years from now. Right. Exactly. Nowadays, it's more like, do the numbers look good this quarter? So I don't. So I get my bonus. I mean, that's. 
that's industry now. And in the end, it is a, it is a case where that particular American brand of capitalism, where, um, where we hope that the market will, uh, will make the best choice is at the heart of, of, uh, the fact that there are great trolleys in Europe and Asia and not in America, because in those other countries, there's much more of a holistic, uh, sense that these aren't, I mean, the, uh, the trolley lines in Amsterdam are not a, um, they're not a private utility, right? right. They're not, a, they're not a profit generating, uh, company owned by a, by a robber baron with a diamond, uh, stick pin, which is what Americans want. Where's the diamond stick pin guy? I, I trust him. <laughs> right. I don't want this. I don't want this thing for everyone to enjoy. And we see that in a lot of utilities in the United States, right? The 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 electrical utilities, which in most cases now are public utilities, all began as private utilities. Uh, there's always some company that's that says, "Hey, you know, hey, cities, let us come in and we'll wire everything up and we'll handle all the billing for you." And the cities go, well, sure, that oh, sounds boy. good. And then um, eventually, you either have to you have to sort of nationalize those utilities when you recognize that that they're uh, they're a universal and ubiquitous good, or you have a like we do in most American cities now, you have an internet service provider that's a private company. And everyone in the city, including all of the, you know, all city businesses, the government, everybody needs the internet. It's no longer a, it's no longer like HBO. It becomes a public utility. And I think in internet in particular, in 20 years, it will be inconceivable to us that that was run by some company with a, with a guy with a diamond stick pin <laughs> in his vest. And that concludes The Death of Trolleys, entry 320.gn4519, certificate number 14871, in the omnibus. Speaking of disappearing technologies, uh, if you somehow have access to the social media of the early 21st century, you should really take the time to follow at John Roderick, at Ken Jennings, and at Omnibus Project. Why not? Bump up our numbers. Make us look and feel good to our peers. Would it kill you? Uh, you could also send email if you have uh, questions or comments about this endeavor to the omnibus project at gmail.com. I just want to thank uh, Penny who emailed us her uh, academic writing about having sex in space. Hmm. It's called Joining the 250 Mile High Club. Let me just note that I didn't solicit this in any way. She just decided hmm. to send me a long article about uh, some of the issues regarding extraterrestrial copulation uh you could send us physical items to our p.o box 55744 shoreline washington 98155 uh for example uh you and i just got a book about uh, about parenting teenagers called teenagers suck oh they do yeah really i'm on board with this book already teenagers do suck I was, uh, my daughter and I were walking uh, home the other night along a dark trail, and she said, I'm scared. And I said, well, there's only a few things that could hurt us on this trail. Wild animals, but most wild animals you can scare away by jingling your keys. And I jingled my keys. She said, that works? And I said, mostly. And I said, the other thing that could hurt us is ghosts, but ghosts also flee from the sound of jingled keys. Luckily. I jingled them again. And I said, the other two things that could hurt us are bad men. And bad men do not run from the sound of jingled keys. They like jingling, but it lures them in. Bad men will run from daddy because daddy is a badder man. And the last thing to, to worry us are teenage boys. And teenage boys are not scared of keys. And they're not scared of daddy. And they're not scared of ghosts. And they're not scared of bad men even because teenage boys suck. They, uh, in many cases, are scared of teenage girls. So maybe oh. your daughter will be able to help you in a few years. Well, I sure was. Keep them away. I know, where I'm standing there surrounded by a gang of wilding teenagers, and she steps forward and goes, you guys have bad hair. And they all shrink up and curl up in balls and die. Save me from confident teenagers. 
Uh, we also got sent a flat-brimmed... You got sent a flat-brimmed baseball hat. I don't understand the reference here. It says Precisement. No. Is this a, is this no. a reference to... Uh, <gasps> one of your... You're, you're, you're very happy about oh the Precious Mod hat. I'm so happy. It's so easy to make John happy. Oh, I'm so happy. Hang on, hang on. Why that particular French oh, advert? Oh, wow. Look, it's exactly right. It does, it's it's Precious Mod, right? So, to explain, uh, a few years ago, I was uh, dating a woman who was a um, a lawyer and a tech company lawyer, mm-hmm. a San Francisco tech company lawyer who moved to Los Angeles and became a tech company lawyer for an even bigger tech company. You're making her too likable in this story. She's, uh, and, uh, she's known on some of the, uh, the podcasts in the, um, John Roderick podcast universe as millennium girlfriend. I've always wondered if she's aware of being millennium girlfriend. Well, some of the other lawyers in her office, I know used to listen to some of the shows and they would tease her, uh, and call me Peepaw. Single they were people. Like, I was listening to Peepaw on his show. Single people saying. shouldn't have podcasts. It gets too tricky. Yeah. That's why we're putting this show in the ground. That's right. So she at one point bought me a black baseball hat that had been custom made by some internet entrepreneur. Hat making outfit. That said, oh no, but, but it was a guy. It was like a rich guy. A guy that, uh, some young guy that owned a tech company that was worth a billion dollars had a couple of baseball hats made for himself and his friends that said entrepreneur across the front of a black baseball hat. You know what's cool? A billion dollars and a baseball cap that says entrepreneur. So she got me one through her insider trading and gave it to me as a gift, which she thought was funny. And for a long time, I wore my entrepreneur baseball hat around uh, in order to please her, because I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. You're a millennium girlfriend pleaser. And so there was a there was a picture of me in my entrepreneur baseball hat, and then someone on the internet. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but someone on the internet um, was goofing around, and I often I don't know if that's it's as true on Omnibus, but I often will say, in response to someone who has said something that I think is correct. I will say, precisement. Mm-hmm. It's my way. It's just another affirmation. You're like a backgammon player chasing the uh, the old world elegance of, uh, of Europe. Precisement. Well, someone, this is now several years ago, photoshopped me in my entrepreneur hat so that it said precisement. And I loved it. It just looked so cool. This photo, you know, this this like faked picture. And at some point along the way, I said, again on the internet, I really wish that that small hat was correct, was actually a real hat and not just a Photoshop. And now someone out there in the world, some friend, has had a small hat made. It, this has to be the only one or one of only two. It's, uh, it's turned into, it's like a 3D printer where you can just take some virtual object, although in this case it was not like a cat object, it was a Photoshop. But this looks exactly like the picture. It's really, it really is it, real. It, became, it was conjured into reality. It really is, and it, it's not... It's like a genie in a bottle scenario. It's not fake. It's really like, it's really uh, embroidered into the hat. And now I have my small hat, and I can die a happy man. I, did, I cannot think of a gift that has made me happier than this hat. It looks like it's from uh, a, a fan in Olympia. Oh, oh they're local. Oh, it's they're, a, they're Washingtonians. There is a note. What does it say? Hey, John, I hope this finds you well. Thanks so much for sharing so much of yourself with the world in word and song. Oh, that's sweet. Wear this hat in health. Well, in sickness too, I guess, but hopefully more health. And it's got like a username. I don't know. I don't know who this is, but um, I'm so, I'm so delighted. I'm so delighted, uh, user. Keep making all good. I don't know what this sign-off means. I'm sure it's some in-joke from one of your other shows. What does it say? I don't know. K-M-A-G-O-O-T-W. Kamegutwa? Is that a is that a Roderick on the lineism? I don't think so. Keep making all the good out of the world. Keep something, something. It's got to be out of the world, right? I don't know. Keep making all good out of the world? That doesn't seem like a good mantra. 
Keep making all galoshes out of thin weasels. Hmm. That seems right. That's probably it. Well, anyway, thank you. Uh, thank you, Thin Weasel 777. And uh, I'm going to wear this hat in good health and in, in sickness and in, in health. You do not need to conjure virtual objects for us and send us physical items, although I'm, I'm not against it. I'm so thrilled. Right thank now. you so much. Uh, you can uh, support us financially. That's the kind of physical object we like appearing out of thin air is uh, American currency. Uh, you, you can do that at patreon.com slash omnibus project. It keeps the show healthy and rolling along. Uh, you should definitely congregate with your fellow Facebook futurelings on the fan page. Uh, there's a similar subreddit if you're boycotting Facebook for all the correct reasons to boycott Facebook. Like maybe you d- dislike the Winklevoss twins. You can uh, find us on TikTok if you're, if you're boycotting Reddit. John's doing a TikTok dance right now. You can find us on Kick if you're boycotting TikTok. You can get high on Shrek if you can't find us on Kick. Uh, did I say all the squeak if you're if you can't take Shrek anymore? Did I do all the good outros? What did I forget? I think that's everything. Uh, Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, happily sheltered in our precise small hats. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. Ken's got his whip inflation now pin over there, and he was going to slide it over here to me, but now I think he's keeping it. Because you got, you got a nice hat. <laughs> I don't know. In our sad, trolleyless world. Uh, we, we have no definitive... Uh, we're not taking a side in whether or not G- General Motors and Phillips Petroleum are responsible for the death of the world. I personally have long been at war with Firestone Tire. <laughs> That's the real villain of the piece. <laughs> Uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.